Hey listener, welcome back to Rewildology, where we explore conservation, travel, and rewilding the planet. I'm your host, Brooke Mitchell-Norman, conservation biologist and world traveler. If you've listened to the show before, then you are well aware that we're not scared to talk about taboo or uncomfortable topics. If this is your first time tuning in, welcome. I love that you're here, and you'll soon hear why this show is different than most nature podcasts. Today, I'm chatting with Annalise Schenk, who studies a rather dark but important topic, genocide. We humans are a violent species, although one could argue not near as violent as we used to be. (laughs) And if you question that at all, just go listen to an episode of Hardcore History by Dan Carlin. Humans have done some pretty effed up things in the past, and as a woman, I am so glad we've evolved from Genghis Khan times. Anyways... (laughs) In today's show, Anna and I chat in depth about the 1994 Rwanda genocide. She discovered her passion for the topic when she joined a study abroad trip in undergrad to learn more about the event. She was hooked. It combined her curiosity in human psychology, her love of history, and how to help communities avoid similar atrocities in the future. Don't worry, there's a strong conservation undertone throughout the episode. We talk about how human violence affects local wildlife, especially during genocides, and how Rwanda has become a leader in conservation, famous for its local superstar, mountain gorillas. Anna refers to a lot of resources throughout the chat, which I've provided in the show notes at rewildology.com. The more we know about this concept, the more we're equipped to avoid it in the future. As always, if you're digging the show, be sure to subscribe so that you can be notified when a new episode drops. I'd also love to hear what you think by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or commenting on the episode on Rewildology's YouTube channel. Of course, you can DM on Instagram at Rewildology or email at hello at Rewildology.com. And now on to my chat with Anna. Well, sweet. I'm so excited to have you here today, Anna. We are going to have a freaking blast. I know we will. Because <laughs> every single time we've talked has been so much fun. Um, so to begin, let's just go way on back because I think the best way to put this all together is to start from the very beginning. So take me back to your childhood. What was it like? You know, where did you grow up? All the all those things. Yeah, absolutely. So I grew up pretty close to where I'm currently living. Um, I'm from Delaware, Ohio, which is right outside of Columbus, like maybe a 30 minute drive. And I grew up on a hobby farm, probably is the best way to classify it. Um, so when I was born, my parents had cows. But when I say cows, I mean like four cows, not like a giant herd or anything. They only owned like two and a half acres. Um, but as we got older, um, I have a little sister but they wanted us to start doing um, 4-H and just kind of getting into agriculture and things like that. Um, So they got goats because they were a lot more comfortable with their second grader being around a bunch of goats than multiple large cows. Um, That makes sense. Pretty much. Yeah. You know, very logical, (laughs) rational um, choice. Yes. So I, yeah. Probably between um, being in second grade and then my senior year of high school, we probably had over 250 goats at any various point, not all together, but just like, I think we counted it maybe a couple of years ago and we're like, oh my gosh, we had a lot of animals over that large stint of time. Um, So, I mean, growing up, I always thought I wanted to be a vet. 
because, you know, I'm surrounded by animals. We always had multiple dogs, had like three or four barn cats at any given time. We had rabbits at one point, just a wide variety of animals. And then um, my other connection with wildlife is that my mom works at the Columbus Zoo and Aquarium um, as their landscape architect. Um, so she does a lot of project design and, you know, plans exhibits. And she's been doing that since I've been alive. Um, so, you know, I got free like zoo classes and summer camps. So if I was at the zoo, which was only 10 minutes from our house, probably two or three days a week for most of the summer during my childhood. Um, and you know, the water park and all that stuff, but I just kind of grew up surrounded by conservation and it's always seemed very second nature to me. Um, and you know, as I've gotten older, I realized I'm horrible at math and science, um, specifically the math portion of that. Um, so I've kind of deviated from, you know, the idea of being a vet and it's changed multiple times as to what I want to do. Um, in high school, it was, I wanted to be a lawyer. Um, and then I went into college at Ohio state and I decided to do psychology and criminology for my majors because that seemed applicable to being a lawyer and very quickly decided that was not what I wanted to do. I wanted <laughs> to maybe be a psychologist. Um, and then I applied to grad school and that kind of fell through and I kind of took a step back and kind of how I got into the nonprofit I'm working with today is um, during my going to my junior year of undergrad, I did a study abroad um, called Genocide and its Aftermath in Rwanda um, through Ohio State. The professor that was leading it um, is absolutely wonderful, and she's highly regarded in the field. Um, her name is Dr. Holly Nyseth Brim, um, and she it was a very small, intimate study abroad, like 12 people. And we just spent three weeks in Rwanda learning about um, basically the timeline of the genocide. So why, for different sociological theories, we think it occurred and how it compares to other genocides from different points in time and ones that we think might occur in the future and, you know, the actual events of the genocide. And then the last week we really focused on, you know, how Rwanda has healed from these events and how it kind of can be seen as, you know, really a, not a gold standard because that's the wrong connotation, but, um, <laughs> is the ideal outcome in a lot of ways for healing and, you know, being a unified nation again. Um, so that study abroad kind of changed a lot of my outlook on what I wanted to do long-term. And I'm now currently, um, working with a nonprofit called Miss Abel Humera. Um, and they work in Rwanda with disabled women to just do job training and reproductive health training. And it's a wonderful program. And then, um, you know, I graduated back in the spring um, and I'm in the process of applying to grad schools again next or this upcoming fall, tentatively, um, for sociology PhDs. So we'll see what happens, but yeah, <laughs> that's kind of childhood and college. Yeah. <laughs> one. All, all in like one nutshell. Like the super cool thing is I trained you right back yeah, in, you did. <laughs> yeah. back in the day. Oh my gosh. That's so fun. How old do you think you were at that time? I think I was 16 because like, it was the first right year at I worked 16? there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. So I worked at the zoo with Brooke. Um, <laughs> that was my first job. I've had it for, like, I think, six years. Um, but yeah, I was 16 and worked at the zoo as well as having gone to summer camp there for years. And you trained me on how to do, like, parking booths <laughs> in our guest relations department. Yeah. And it was 
you're the same person. You're bubbly and wonderful. <laughs> oh, that's so fun. Yeah. Really, yeah. Laid, like, really laid the groundwork there at the zoo. Um, for sure. But no, this is like so how it's just so fun how life comes full circle like that. Like, yeah. who would think that at that time that me just training you on how to do a parking booth and here, you know, yeah. six -ish years later, life has come back full circle. And now we are talking about some very deep stuff, some very deep yeah. stuff, but very important stuff. And then also this phenomenal nonprofit that you are a part of. Yeah. Yeah. So cool. I had a link for that little connection piece yeah. in there. <laughs> oh, that's great. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, so let's go back. Um, so yeah. I, I'm, I'm so excited. Oh, that's not the right word. I'm so <laughs> grateful that you are an expert or way more knowledgeable in this topic than most yeah. of us. Because a lot of us, anytime we hear about a genocide or anytime we hear about anything like this, we just, because it's, it's uncomfortable. And so we push it away. Like we don't know much about it. Um, I mean, everybody knows about the Holocaust, of course. And then I think for, and in a little level, you know, people are at least aware of what happened to the Native Americans. So like people are at least know of the concept. I would love if you could really start to get down into it. So what is genocide? How does it happen? Um, and then if you want to use some case studies to like go into, um, that would yeah. be great as well. But yeah, teach us. Teach us what yeah, this absolutely. is. <laughs> and I will say, again, I have an undergraduate degree in sociology and or criminology specifically and psychology. So I'm in no way an expert on this either. But yeah, I have a little bit more background knowledge than I think most people um, would have. So genocide is the intentional removal of a population, basically. Um, that population can be basically any definition. Um, it can be a race. It can be, which has a broad definition, race oftentimes isn't what we think of as in a sociological sense, as we do in the U.S., of like black and white and Asian and all of that. There's a lot of subsects of race throughout the world. Um, so like in Rwanda, for example, um, in our mind, they're, or they're black um, people, but they defined their social groups largely in the racial groups um, by class. So they had the Hutu and the Tutsi, and they actually have a third group called the Chua that we don't talk about a lot, um, who were considered pygmy people. Um, but the Hutu and the Tutsi were classified by a lot of colonial settlers as people, kind of on arbitrary terms, as people who had different sized noses um, or who owned more cows was actually a large identifier of it. So if you had 10 or more cows, you were Tutsi. And if you had less than 10 cows, you were Hutu. Um, and very much across Africa, we see a theme with colonialism of those classes being um, very arbitrarily placed on people. So prior to colonization, um, and Rwanda was colonized by Belgium primarily, um, they really didn't have any idea of race. Um, but when the colonists came in, they gave out ID cards and started making rules in their society based around different races and classes of people. Um, which again, that's just to reiterate the point that, you know, what we think of as race in the United States is not a universal um, definition of race or what comes to mind for a lot of Americans isn't the same thing that comes to mind to someone um, in Africa or even in Europe occasionally. Um, but yeah, genocide um, is frequently 
um, just the intentional removal of a social or of a group. Um, so it can be religious. Um, there's something going on right now that many will argue is or is not a genocide, depending on what country you're from and what the UN says, which is in Myanmar. And that is a religious based uh, mass atrocity or uh, act of mass violence at the moment um, between a group of Muslims and the Buddhists there. Um, wow. So, ge- yeah, genocide can be um, any group being intentionally exterminated, for lack of a better word. Um, and it doesn't have to be necessarily killing. Um, it can be things like genital mutilation, um, anything that prevents the reproduction of a group or the growth of a group. Um, so it can also be cultural genocide, um, which is a lot of the times what people think of when they think of the Native Americans. Um, so, yes, we did give them like smallpox blankets and things like that that actively killed them. But we also put their culture to the side and tried to reform them into making them become um, more white or more like us. Um, so that removal from them historic or the removal of their culture historically can also be considered um, a cultural genocide. So it's a big term that can be used to um, describe a lot of conflicts. And a lot of people do use the word mass violence as a synonym because genocide can, is it just holds some legal standing with like the UN and things like that. Cause we do have statutes against genocide that were really big. And it is a very new term. Um, it was coined right after the Holocaust, um, by a sociologist. So it's a newer term. So a lot of older conflicts have been that weren't necessarily called a genocide first or then went back in history and changed their definition. Yeah. So that's, what genocide is. And I have forgotten your other question. <laughs> no, no, that, that was good. No. So like the perfect example then, um, I, or at least one that I think that since it was so close to you and you studied it hardcore, what happened in Rwanda? So when you went over and studied, what happened? Yeah. So there's a lot of different narratives surrounding it. Um, but basically 1994, um, they call it the genocide against the Tutsi. Um, so Tutsi were considered more upper-class citizens, and then the Hutu were considered lower-class citizens. And the very short narrative is that basically there was a major plane crash um, that involved the death of uh, the president of Rwanda at the time and many of his um, close members um, of his cabinet and things like that. Um, and he was Hutu. Um, so prior to this plane crash, there had been, um, a growing narrative, um, and a very strong divide between Hutu and Tutsis. Um, so you had like roll call in school. A lot of the time, um, they would say your name and then whether you were Hutu or Tutsi afterwards. And a lot of the time, yeah. Um, so there was a very clear narrative of who belonged to what class, because it wasn't necessarily visually apparent, like I was saying earlier, it's considered racial, but it, the race wasn't something that people could look at you and say what you were for the most part. Um, so, you know, there was a growing divide and there had been a lot of jargon and propaganda being published prior to the plane crash surrounding, um, like the Tutsis are trying to destroy the Hutu and we must protect ourselves. Uh, and it was to some extent going both ways. Um, but there had been um, 
people calling each other cockroaches, which is another big signal of genocide, is when we dehumanize a group through name calling. Um, that's one of our big red flags that we look for um, on what might turn into a genocide. Um, so there had been a lot of buildup beforehand. It's not just to say a plane crashed and genocide yeah. broke out. Genocide um, happened. <laughs> right. There had been a lot of conflicts and a lot of smaller, um, I don't want to say microaggressions, but similar to that occurring beforehand. Um, and so when his plane crashed, they locked down the capital of Kigali, um, or of Rwanda, Kigali. Um, and he, or they put up road barricades and basically they were checking everybody's ID cards um, and people couldn't leave the Providence they were in um, without going through a checkpoint. And it was, it was basically automatic lockdown. Um, and from that point forward, there were about a hundred days of violence in which neighbors were turning uh, their neighbors in because you knew who was Hutu or Tutsi because um, it was just so common in the dialogue. There were basically militias, um, so homegrown militias that were uh, forming of Hutus that were going out to um, kill Tutsi. And they kind of stormed, or started small hunting groups and the military was also involved in this. And so they were actively incentivizing people to go out and exterminate Tutsi was um, often the verbiage used. Um, so this happened for about a hundred days and it's one of the shorter genocides, actually. Um, one of the reasons it's heavily studied is because it is pretty clear cut from a beginning to an end point, which we'll get to the end point in a second. Um, but the plane crash is pretty much when most historians are going to say the genocide started. And then a hundred days later, um, a couple, obviously there was a mass refugee crisis that occurred during this. So individuals who were able to flee left Rwanda and went to neighboring countries like Burundi. So someone by the name of Paul Kagame, who is actually the current president of Rwanda, um, was one of those individuals um, who was Tutsi, who um, fled to Burundi. He got together his own militia of Tutsis, and they re-entered Rwanda and worked their way back into Kigali, which is at the center of Rwanda, um, slowly but surely. And liberated basically the country at that point. Um, and that clearly marks the end of it. So it's, like I said, studied pretty heavily just because we have a beginning and an end and it's a shorter conflict. A lot of other conflicts, um, like Darfur right now has been going on for, uh, it's since 2004. So it's a very long conflict. So it's very difficult to study because there's so many global players. This one is very clear cut of two groups conflicting for a short period of time. Um, but yeah, that is what happened with the 1994 genocide. Um, yeah. So was there like a leader that was like, go out and kill all the Tutsi? Was there someone who rose up as like, I don't want to say the evil figure, but kind of if we're painting it that way, was there someone that was like, this is all the Tutsi's fault. We all, we need to go out and exterminate them all. Or was it like a collective understanding, but how did it escalate to the point where extermination was the answer? In other words. Yeah, absolutely. So the president who passed, I am blanking on names and I apologize. Um, the president who died in the plane crash, um, had had similar rhetoric to that prior to his death. Um, the rhetoric used by um, the army and the Hutus that were going out and forming militias 
was that Tutsis had shot down his plane. So that was kind of the further escalation point. Um, there was already a lot of issues surrounding the two social groups. He had used the inflammatory verbiage to describe that social group. And then you had um, the false accusation. We don't actually know who shot down the plane to this day. Um, it's likely that it was someone um, who was working for him, actually. But again, they honestly do not know to this day who shot it down. Um, but it was very unlikely that it was Tutsi. But that likely false accusation is what caused a lot of the further escalation. Mm-hmm. Um, but there wasn't any individual, which is actually um, one of the things that scares people a lot about it, is that it was genuinely neighbors turning on neighbors. Um, so a big part of the genocide was that um, broadcast radio was being used um, very heavily to push out this propaganda. So, oh, I mean, it's a remote country, um, a lot of hills. It's not easily traveled by foot. So a lot of people relied on radio transmission to communicate with others, to get their news sources. And so there was pretty much a total overhaul of all radio and it was pretty much turned entirely into um, propaganda radio. So, you know, radio broadcasters telling you that your neighbor tried to kill the president and things like that really turned into people turning on their neighbors. So there are stories of people who were like, we had dinner with them on a weekly basis and we were really close. And then they tried to or did kill my family. Like that is why it was so, yeah. <laughs> this gives me the heebie-jeebies. Yeah. Like, oh my God. It's why it was so chilling for a lot of people. Mm. Um, and it, it is horrifying. I don't mean to sound chipper or anything like that. No, it's just no. Something that yeah. I, yeah. I do. I have studied it a lot and I plan to study it a lot more in the future um, as a topic. So it's one of those things where in my mind, this is just a normal conversation. Oh, I get um, it. I'm a con- like yeah. I'm a biologist. Like I freaking yeah. get it. It's like, oh, we're just talking about this, this, and this. And it's like, wait, what did you just say? It's like, okay, I know <laughs> I gotta put it back in perspective that this is actually weird to anybody else right. that doesn't know what I'm talking <laughs> about. I should probably put this in context um and not talk about it like this. No, I completely get yeah. it. <laughs> like when you're a scientist and that is the way you work, because I mean you have to, I mean, to study a topic like this, that needs studied, that needs yeah. studied because one, we are a very violent species and just, I mean, why would we ever want to genocide again? You know? And, uh, just some of the stuff you were just saying just reminded me so much of what was happening in the U S at the end of, you know, the last presidential campaign and man, yeah. that's scary. And what I will say is we haven't, as a U, as the United States, we haven't hit any, we hit some of those warning points, um, but we haven't hit most of that list. And I, sorry that I'm referring to the list and I cannot tell you what all is on there. Um, my brain is blanking, but. You can you just know, send those is, to me later and I can just yeah, like put absolutely. them in show notes or something. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it absolutely is. Um, it's scary. Humans are very much group think um, as a species. and. You see that at play with Rwanda. You see that at play with almost or every single genocide. Um, So, you know, I think the big thing that I've taken away from my social science um, career thus far is, you know, it's kind of like what your parents tell you, you know, if everybody else is jumping off the cliff, are you you just going to go do it because everybody else is? It's 
a reminder to always take a step back in high stress situations or in emotionally strong situations, even more importantly, I would say, and reevaluate the situation and say, well, would I normally do this? Or am I doing this because everyone else is, or because I'm angry or because I'm stressed. Um, and I think just that pause is incredibly important and something I've personally taken away when I get worked up over something or, you know, I see everybody else doing something that I'm not quite sure about. Um, cause you know, most people will, unfortunately we've seen in studies, um, you know, do what everybody else is doing and not know why they're doing it. They'll know something's wrong and they won't stop what they're doing. They'll just continue. So yeah, you know, there's little life lessons to be learned with social science. Um, even if you're studying mass violence or something like that or large scale events. Yeah. It's fascinating. It's fascinating. I mean, we are just completely from like a scientific standpoint, we are a very interesting species and so, so I'm just curious. Um, so mm-hmm. I, I just love evolutionary biology so much. Um, it, could you, by chance, is there something that's in our DNA that just makes this more of a thing in our species? Um, I mean, I know a lot of species, you know, they, they do a lot of killing, you know, within, you know, interspecies stuff, but mm-hmm. what is it about humans that it's, we feel it's okay to just kill our own kind? You know, I don't know from a specifically biological perspective, but mm-hmm. I would say from a social psychology perspective, it's that we are just social creatures overall. Um, so it's a want and a need to fit into a group. Um, so, you know, you, you really want to belong. And if everybody who you want to belong with is doing something like being angry at a different group, you're more inclined to do the same thing. Um, and it, you know, it, goes to the extreme, unfortunately, where, you know, they're committing violence against a different group or a group other than you. And you're more inclined to also commit violence against them because you want to fit in. And there's also just the other, other, we don't like things that are not of our clan or of our group. So whatever we identify as our group, we try really hard to protect and we actively dislike usually what is not familiar or belonging to us in that regard. So, mm. yeah, so have most genocides then been through just like with that, with that description that you gave have most been through, um, just people that look differently or also have them, or is it like an equal mix of people looking different and just religious groups? Is it, is it just more of a mix or, um, yeah. So there's definitely been, um, some research into that, but for the most part, it's an even mix. It's not mm. one or the other. And a lot of the time there's interplay between the two. Um, so you can have ones where a religious, I mean, like even the Holocaust, Jewish people are a religious group, but they also identify as a cultural group. And so those aren't always very clear boundaries. Um, it really is just fear of the other, I would say, um, that really leads to it overall. Mm, okay. Yeah. That makes sense. So how did, um, that amazing gentleman that who's now the Rwandan president, how did mm-hmm. he get it to stop? How do you get a country that's hating and killing each other? How, how do you get it to stop? Yeah. So they pretty much erased the concept of Hutu and Tutsi and 
Chua. Um, Chua is still kind of a thing because, like I had mentioned, they're considered pygmy people or dwarf people, um, which aren't really politically correct terms, but it's what they're referred to in their country. Um, and they actually live in the hills mostly and are pretty much off the grid. Um, so they kind of still exist. Um, they also weren't really involved in the genocide for the most part. But he came back in, and what is also fascinating about Rwanda is he had the option, basically, to do reprisal killings, which is what a lot of genocide prevention focuses on preventing, um, because, yes, you've stopped one group from killing the other, but what's to say that that same group isn't incredibly mad about their family dying... Revenge! ...and and (laughs) wanting revenge. Um, So he... Um, and that's why it's such a wonderful, I don't want to say wonderful story, but it really is an impressive feat that they overcame. Um, but he basically said, there is no more Hutu, there is no more Tutsi, we are all Rwandan, which is something you'll hear over and over again. We are all Rwandan, um, if you visit Rwanda. And they're really proud of that. So they did um, a lot of work individually um, and societally to overcome this, they had what's called, and this is really interesting from a human rights perspective, um, what are called gachacha courts. And these are basically communal court systems they set up. And this took 10 years for them to get through all these cases. But they had community elders, um, so not people who were trained in law or anything like that. But, you know, maybe somebody who had a lot of cows, because they do still use cattle as a form of wealth and um, a status symbol. So maybe someone who has a lot of cows and then someone who's considered, who's a doctor they might have on their committee. And then a third person usually, um, who else, who's also highly regarded in the community. So they have like a panel of three people and they would just reserve a day of the week and the entire community would come together, usually in like an open field or on a hillside. And they would, have someone who was being accused of a crime and it wasn't necessarily genocide. A lot of this was like, they stole the roofing off my house when I fled the country or they took my cows or, you know, it it didn't have to, it could be they, I watched them kill my sibling, but it wasn't necessarily that. Um, It was a lot of small claims too, um, or property-based claims. Um, And they basically would spend one whole day as a community once a week until they got through all of their claims going through and hearing all of these cases. And you would self-represent both sides and it would just be, okay, well, I saw this and members of the community would chime in and say, yes, I also saw that. Or actually, no, I think it was this person. I saw them do that. Um, And it was almost a community dialogue. Um, It was much different than any court system we've seen in the U.S. or anything like that. And then the board of elders or highly regarded members of the community would make a verdict on whether or not that person was guilty and what their punishment was. Um, So they did have a lot of people go to prison and a lot of research right now in Rwanda is looking at uh, reentry of people who committed genocide back into the communities and how the community is accepting those individuals. And if they're you know, estranged from their family or if their fami- family is welcoming them back in and just how they're getting along, how they're finding income, all of that. Um, so that's a big area of research that's coming out right now. Um, and a lot of the people I'm hoping to work with in grad school are studying that. 
Um, and then the advisor I mentioned earlier, Dr. Brem, um, has actually studied those Gachacha courts really heavily in her research because it's a pretty unique phenomena. Um, and it's actually something that we think could work with other future genocides or ongoing genocides to really help build the community because it is your community is coming together. Um, and yeah, there's a lot of high tension, but it's good faith that, you know, people are going to listen to your claim or listen to your plea. Um, and then, you know, it's not a legal system that's necessarily deciding your fate. It's people who also belong to that community. Um, so it's a really unifying process is what they're finding, but that's been a big component of, um, overcoming those labels and just healing as a community. And they also have a ton of monuments. There's a national day of remembrance on the day it ended. The hundred days um, from beginning to end are kind of a solemn period um, in Rwanda. They've done a lot to make sure that their future generation or that there's a grief period for people who lost individuals. And I will say it's not all sunshine and rainbows. There's still plenty of people who fled and have not gone back. And this was in 1994. There's people who are still living in the U.S. or, um, you know, other countries that were refugees that have no plan of returning and are scared to. It's not a perfect process. And I don't think you could ever hope for it to be um, completely unifying, but it is one of the better outcomes we've seen um, with genocide overall. So, yeah. I mean, that's even with the, those potentially not so great things, it does sound like from an overall standpoint, it, it has healed as much as one could hope for in such an awful situation like that, which is, that's fantastic. Um, so, so what got you So take me, I want to talk about you again. Yeah. <laughs> How did you get so involved in this particular topic? What was it about it that really drew you in and took you all the way halfway across the world to, to study it on the ground in person? Um, I would love, like, talk me through that. Where did this idea come up and, and how did you get over across the world? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I kind of asked myself a similar question and I don't have a surefire answer as to what really led me to it? Um, I already said my mom is a landscape architect, but um, my other parent is a funeral director. Um, so there's always been kind of something in the back of my head that's been, I think, more comfortable with concepts like death than a lot of people. Um, I think I asked about it a lot earlier, and part of it's growing up on a farm too. Like mm. we had babies that died, like they didn't make it necessarily. It's you know part of the natural process of life. And I also grew up very Catholic. So death is a pretty core tenant of Christianity as a whole, but specifically Catholicism. So I think a lot of just little things in my life have always made me more comfortable with studying more macabre topics, I think is probably the better, best way to put it. But then, like I mentioned in college, um, and I mean, I didn't have any intent of studying anything like this at any point really, or with a lot of intent, but, um, I really loved social psychology. I was finding, um, I worked in a social psychology research lab, um, my sophomore year of college and a little bit of my junior year. And I've always liked political science a lot and I've loved history. So I've always struggled to find something where I'm like, 
I like social science. I like psychology and I like history, but I don't really know how to combine those or if I can combine those. Um, and then I was also studying criminology on the side because I was like, well, if I decide I want to be a lawyer, that probably looks good on a resume or a CV. Um, and I kind of just, I was told many times by, um, my parents that I should really study abroad and my grandparents were like, you should really study abroad. Like it's eye opening to everybody who does it. We have the funds in your college account to, you know, do it, find something you want to do and do it. It doesn't have to be like super applicable. Just make sure you get credits for it basically. And I was looking at it and OSU offered two study abroads for my majors for psychology. It was like going to Germany and visiting like the home of Sigmund Freud and not a huge Freud fan and, you know, and Vienna and, you know, like the birthplace of psychology. And I was like, it's not the worst study abroad trip, but it's Europe. And like, I think I would be content visiting Europe on a vacation and not learning about Freud and <laughs> Carl Jung. And, you know, like, I, I, I just don't think I'll get that much out of it. And then the other option was for sociology, this study abroad in Rwanda. And they had only done it, I think, one time. Um, I think I was in the second group that went. And I ju it just was very interesting to me. And it was one of those things I was tired of people hounding me about studying abroad. So I was like, okay, well, I'm going to go to Rwanda and study genocide. And I thought maybe that would shut people up and <laughs> be like, no, you, you really shouldn't do that. And it was a wonderful experience and I'm so incredibly glad I did it. Um, but it was just kind of one of those weird side paths I went down academically that I absolutely loved. I didn't think I would dislike it by any means, but I am incredibly surprised by how impassioned I am about it. And it really opened my eyes to a area of sociology that I didn't know had existed previously. Um, and sociology is wonderful because it does all the things I had just mentioned. I love it really heavily is influenced by social psychology. Um, most experiments, we, experiments we have about social behavior are social psychology experiments. Um, like the Ash line study is one of the ones where it's commonly referred to for groupthink of, you know, if you have a line of six people and everybody before the actual participant is in on it and they say, no, you know, the shorter line is longer. You're going to have that person who isn't in on this study, who is the actual participant say the same thing as everybody else, even though they can clearly visibly see that it's the incorrect answer. Um, so that's one. And then, um, yeah, there, there's just so many social psychology experiments that are fascinating that were done in, you know, the 1950s, right after that were actually heavily influenced by, um, researchers who were affected by the Holocaust. And they had questions regarding what drives people to do this. This is horrible. And I have faith in humanity, but how, how does this happen? Um, so, you know, Ash is one of them and there's a couple shock experiments that are no longer considered ethical by any means. <laughs> most of them. <laughs> yeah, most of these are not. Most of these would not get reviewed by an IRB and pass anymore. No. Um, but, you know, a lot of experiments that were actually influenced by these tragic events um, of the Holocaust and things like that, that, you know, social psychology and then sociology use on a regular basis. And then, you know, the historical part of school that I always loved 
is a huge part of sociology too, because, or at least the genocide studies aspect of it, because, you know, the question you had asked earlier, what, how did this happen is often answered at least in part by looking at, you know, how Rwanda was colonized and studying the historical aspects of Rwandan culture. Um, and that's a common theme throughout genocide studies is looking at, well, why do these groups dislike each other? What happened that caused what could have been a small conflict to be mass violence or a genocide? Um, so everything just kind of clicked when I did the study abroad. There was no real intent to go into this. I had the Dr. Brem asked me during the abroad trip, she was like, are you going to go to grad school for sociology? And I directly told her, no, I'm, I'm trying to be a clinical psychologist. And she's like, okay, well, you know, if that doesn't work out, sociology would be a really good fit for you. It seems like, cause you're really interested in this. And I, when I didn't get in for clinical psychology to a PhD program, I was like, you know what? I was so much happier when I was studying genocide abroad um, or just studying it in general, because it really does combine, you know, all of my passions. So yeah, that's, that's the long story of how we yeah. got to where we're at. Isn't it amazing yeah. how moments in our lives that we think are so shitty are actually the ones that we needed the most. Yeah, absolutely. It's one of those things where in, I got rejected from grad school for the first time and then COVID hit. So I even had people emailing me back and being like, I'm sorry, like you didn't get into grad school, but also everyone who did get in is getting deferred a year or actually we have to cancel the program for this upcoming year and all sorts of stuff. And even the people who wrote letters of rec for me were like, honestly, you're probably better off not having gotten into a program in, you know, 2020 or in the cohort of 2020, because you're going to have school online and who knows what that's going to look like. And it's not going to be the same academic experience. So yeah, it's been, I don't know, a weird blessing in disguise. And I definitely needed that step back moment and wait, am I doing what my plan was or is, and do my plan and what I want to do and what I like doing line up? Because, you know, I wasn't, I am passionate about psychology. Like I can talk about mental health all day and how incredibly important it is. And I mean, I was going into clinical psychology, so I was going to study like anxiety and depression, which is incredibly prevalent, but I don't know if I'm cut out for sitting one-on-one with a client for eight hours a day and, you know, not seeing a quick turnaround or anything like that. So it's really one of those, it, it was a good aha moment of like, oh, this isn't like, yeah, I've been working towards this goal since my sophomore year of college, but I think I probably should have reevaluated my goal in my junior year of college. <laughs> yeah. I feel you. I definitely did the exact yeah. same thing right at the end of college as well. So my life completely flipped upside down. Yeah. Something very, very, very similar story. And it's amazing. I just love though, at least like in your case and my case as well, before we took the next step of education, we luckily figured it out before we went hundreds of thousands of dollars and possibly student loan debt to possibly get a degree that we weren't actually wanting in the first place. So yeah, very grateful for that. Yeah. And there's wonderful things that came out of my psychology experience. I can't talk experience. Um, (laughs) You know, I 
had the ability to write a senior thesis and, you know, it helped me evaluate things like, oh, I do love writing research papers, which is a weird thing to like, but you know, that is something I enjoy. And so I probably do want to go the academic route with whatever I want to do, but, oh, I don't love the specific research question I have. So maybe that's what needs to be reevaluated. Um, so, you know, even if you are on the wrong track, just like advice to people listening, you know, there's little things you can get from what you're doing too. Um, it's not always a complete wash. It's not like I wasted my senior year of college writing a thesis about depression symptoms. You know, it's, there's little things you get out of it too. Yeah. yeah. Cause we even talked about, cause I think right now, um, you know, me, I'm not working in conservation. I'm working for a real estate startup tech company just because, you know, COVID and if something similar happened to you, you're working at this super fun little pizza shop right now, yes. like, <laughs> like in this managerial role and they love you and you're freaking good at making pizzas. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. it's just weird it skill sets. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It's just got to make the moment now work. Like we're making our bills work. We're paying everything. And with, but knowing in our mind that this is what we want to pursue is like, this is what we want to study. Um, and everything and how we want to go down. So take me back to Rwanda. Um, so mm-hmm. I'm a lot of people listening may not even know where this is. Yeah. So, so, Very good so point. where exactly is Rwanda? And then I would love for you to tell me more about your experience there yeah. and what it was like traveling there and just, just, yeah. What, what your day to day was like and, and really paint a picture of what Rwanda is for someone who might not even know. That, that was a country. Yeah, absolutely. So it is a very, very small country. And when I say small, it is frequently um, the state they use to compare it to is Maryland. Um, so the surface area or square footage of Maryland, but you put what it, it's called the land of 10,000 hills. And I think what they describe as a hill is what I in central Ohio consider a small mountain. Um, <laughs> these are not tiny hills, um, but I am from a very flat place. So, um, yeah, it's a very, very hilly country in East Africa. Um, it is surrounded, it's landlocked. Um, so Burundi is right there. Tanzania is right there. Um, it has a lake that is absolutely beautiful called, I'm probably butchering this name and a lot of names that I'm saying throughout this. So I apologize. Um, but Lake, Lake Kivu, um, is right there as well. Um, but yeah, landlocked country in East Africa, a lot of hills. Um, you do have a small national rainforest. You also have a small safari area. Um, it's got a little bit of everything that you would, I think, normally think of Africa as, um, but you know, my experience there, you have, I've never met a more welcoming group of people than the Rwandans. Um, they're just excited to see you. They really love sharing their country with people internationally. Um, part of that, again, it's my experience. I'm very clearly not from there. We all were very clearly not from there. I think out of the 14 people that we went with, I think 12 of us were really, really pale white. Um, so it's very obvious to them that we're not from there and they get very excited to, you know, feed people and just share their history with you. Um, because we were studying genocide, every single person, um, we interviewed and talked to, um, 
would tell you their version of the national narrative surrounding it before they went into like, we might be interviewing somebody about their women's co-op um, that they were part of for survivors. But instead of just going into like the questions like we would in a normal American context, they'll tell you the half hour long story of the genocide and then they'll go into, you know, their questions and things like that. So, you know, just incredibly welcoming people. Um, they do have a national narrative surrounding the genocide and everybody's pretty much on the same page about um, the timeline and the historical events and they'll add their personal story into it. Um but it's one of the most beautiful places I've ever been from just traveling. Um, and I've been to a lot of national parks, um, and everything, but everywhere you look, um, there's just beautiful green space. The hills are incredibly annoying to drive through. Um, (laughs) not that I was driving, but, um, at least it's a beautiful scenery the entire time you're driving. But yeah, to get to one side of the country, like I said, it's the size of Maryland, but you'd expect, um, you know, driving straight through Maryland might take like two hours. You, we went from Kigali, the capital to the rainforest, which was basically directly West and tiny country. I think it took us six hours one way to drive. Um, so just, you know, it is dirt roads outside of the capital and, you know, traditional developing country, I would say. Um, but absolutely gorgeous. Um, from a conservation standpoint, they're one of the only areas you can visit lowland gorillas. Um, and a huge part of their GDP as a country is, um, around ecotourism, which I find fascinating. It's not what I want to study, but it's absolutely fascinating, um, because they are receiving and have since the genocide received a lot of international aid pretty much across the board. It's not very, um, I don't want to say partisan, but like they'll get U.S. aid and they get aid from China. They get aid from Russia. You know, it's pretty international that they're getting assistance. But a large portion of their GDP, I think a third is like ecotourism based. So, yeah, that's really exciting from a conservation standpoint. Absolutely. (laughs) They have absolutely made it so that instead of poaching, um, they can instead turn poachers into tour guides and that supplies, you know, local restaurants with business. It supplies hotels with business. Their airport is pretty well developed. Um, so, you know, they can staff people there. Um, taxis, any transportation services all get business from this. Um, and it's not cheap to do, I will say. Um, I did not do it while I was there. A um, couple thousand dollars, I think, for a day trip or something like that. But absolutely very great for their economy. And it's exciting to see because you have, um, the Congo also borders it. Um, and you can't go see gorillas in the co- or in the Congo because they are very warm torn at the moment. So, yeah, absolutely. I'm so glad you brought that up. Cause that's one of the reasons why I love Rwanda so much is, you know, when they came out of all of this, because from a wildlife standpoint, when it comes to genocide and, and just mass conflict in general, it's always the wildlife and nature that hurts significantly. I don't want to say the most because that's, that's really demeanized, you know, just doesn't the atrocity that is genocide and what happens to other lives is just, you know, heartbreaking. But when that happens, then 
everything suffers, all of the wildlife, because when that happens, there's no stability. So there's no way to get your basic needs of life. You know, just how you had the example of somebody stealing, you know, tiles from another house because they had fled the country. Well, maybe that might've been their only way to get the tiles because everything was just completely non-existent. You know, when a country is war-torn like that, then to get basic needs and supplies can be very, very hard. And then when that happens, well, you still need to feed your family. So there is a forest right there. And this is when, you know, the bushmeat trade gets way higher because if you still need money, I still need to find a way to pay for things to support my family. So, you know, the black market increases, uh, bushmeat, poaching, all these really bad things for wildlife happen during times of peak human violence. And then on top of that, then when the more contact you have with wildlife and these animals that should just be left alone, then you have higher cases of zoonotic diseases. And then there could be a plague of some zoonotic disease that goes through a human population because they are closer to this wildlife. So it's this vicious cycle of, of just pure death in all ways, shape and form, like yeah. the wildlife dies, human dies, um, culture dies. I mean, if so many bad things can happen when these, um, conflicts arise and that's why it's so incredible for countries like Rwanda, when they came back, that they had this very strong conservation mindset and they have these plans in place for one of the most endangered and most important animals that we have to save right now. And I mean, it's, expensive. Like you said, it is so expensive to go and go on a gorilla trek in Rwanda, because that is how much value they place on their gorillas, which is super, super, super exciting. And I talked about it quite a lot. Um, me and Arthur did in my episode six, where we talked about like human habituation versus food conditioning. This is the exact example of correct human habituation like these, there's only certain groups that you can go see, um, certain gorilla families that you can go see. Um, you can't have like any food with you. It's just simply, you are just along in the forest with them and they do not care that you're there. And they're very highly protected because they bring in a lot of money. I mean, yeah. <laughs> if it costs you, um, us dollars, it costs, I don't know what the current price is, like price is right now, since I no longer work for my last company, but it was like, $1,200, $1,500 or something like that yeah. per no, gorilla that trek to do. Um, and that's just one. And then you can spend an hour with them, which in, from everything I've seen, it's like one of the most amazing wildlife encounters. And yeah. I've heard people that are like in the field and they tell me that to this day, like the gorilla trek was the most amazing wildlife encounter they've ever had in their life. So it's worth the money if you have it. Oh yeah. But um, yeah. So beautiful what Rwanda has done in so many different ways, you know, like how they've come back from this, how they didn't just come back and kill everybody else. And then how they made conservation such a part of their economy moving forward. Um, yeah. Because without it, who knows if the gorillas would even still be here. Honestly, Absolutely. honestly, no, it's very, very true. Um, and it's, yeah, it is expensive. It was something that they were like, well, are we going to go see gorillas while we're in Rwanda, like on our study abroad? And they're like, well, the price of your study abroad would double. Um, literally so, double. <laughs> yeah, literally. Cause it's actually a very affordable study abroad. If anyone, the actual flight to Rwanda is probably about as much as a gorilla trek, um, in all honesty. So 
if you're interested in visiting Rwanda, um, the flights are not that expensive in my personal opinion for expensive flights internationally. Especially Africa. Um, Africa can get yeah. expensive. Africa can get really expensive. Um, your flight will always be a connection to Uganda. Um, pretty much always. Um, but yeah, no, it's not cheap at all, but it is absolutely worth it. And they do a fantastic job, um, from everything I've heard and seen, um, both being there and then, you know, talking to you, the zoo always praised it. Um, when they, I've had people do it, um, that I know who work there. Um, and they're not just focused on the gorillas. Um, they have a notorious plastic bag ban, um, that is usually, you know, the Achilles heel of all tourists that go there. Um, but you know, they, they had a ban on plastic bags for a long time because they realized how strong or how bad of a pollutant it was. Um, they were finding them in their forests and they just completely said no more. Um, so don't bring your plastic bags to Rwanda. It's really not that hard from personal experience. Just <laughs> get a cloth tote. Exactly. Um, but yeah, they are really very conservation focused as a nation. And, you know, they are actually the fourth of women in uh, political seats and power. They're actually the fourth largest um, ratio of men to women. They made a big initiative after the genocide as well, actually. I probably should mention this earlier, um, where a big push was, okay, we think, and this is actually a false claim, but it had good outcomes, as weird as that sounds. Um, the thought process in the aftermath of the genocide was women are less violent than men. So we can prevent this from happening if we put more women in power. So they made a quota system where I think if, and I'm not hundred percent sure on this, I can send you for your show notes as well. I think it's a fourth of all of their congressional seats and it's not in Congress. It's a little different than our political system, but a fourth of their, um, political representation has to be women. And they've actually exceeded that quota um, pretty heavily. So I think the only countries that are ahead of them in the ratio of men to women um, are Scandinavian countries. And then it's Rwanda randomly on that list. And I should say um, it is a falsehood. Um, we know from a sociological perspective that women are not less inclined to commit violent acts. It's just the type of violent acts they commit are different than that of men. So women might be less inclined to, you know, directly kill somebody, but they are more likely to poison someone or do things that are more indirect um, causes of death for other individuals. Um, and we saw women commit a lot more um, property crime, like I mentioned with the roofing. So no, they weren't actively going and killing their neighbors, but they were, you know, stealing all of their neighbor's property. <laughs> That has its consequences as well. Yes. Um, but yes, in Rwanda's case, less women committed genocide directly um, than men. And so that was their thought process kind of boiled down. It was a little bit more nuanced than what I just said. But in short, they were like, oh, women are less violent. Let's let's put them in power. So it's had interest, or really good consequences. Um, they're much more female friendly than a lot of other nations in their region. So, yeah. So I think that's the perfect segue to yeah. this nonprofit. Yeah. Um, that's like freaking perfect. You couldn't have set that up better. So tell me all the things. Tell me how you got involved. Cause I know it's, that in itself is a, is a story. And then the mission and I mean, yeah, let's just, let's just go into it. Absolutely. So um, 
The nonprofit we're talking about is called Miss Able Humera. Um, it is a Rwandan-based nonprofit that focuses on job training and reproductive health education primarily. Um, we are branching out and it's in the works currently to expand our programs to a couple more things like community outreach and partnering with local schools. Um, but it's a Rwanda nonprofit that educates women who are disabled on the topics I just mentioned. It's an incredibly important task. Um, the founder's name is Gadalive, um, and I'm going to mispronounce your last name, Akagame, I believe. Um, that's probably incorrect. And she is one of the best people I have ever spoken to. Um, she's absolutely wonderful and such a sweet person. She married, um, I think back in 2018, her current husband, um, who is a double amputee as a result of um, violence in the 1994 genocide. And he's a painter. So he, I think, paints using his feet and his mouth um, and creates beautiful watercolors if you want to look them up online. But she married him back in 2018 and she received a lot of stigma and um, stigma from her friends and family and was kind of ostracized overall from a lot of people she considered like close personal friends um, because he was disabled. And in Rwanda, there is, as in a lot of other countries um, and a little bit even in the U.S., I would say, um, a stigma against people who are disabled as subhuman, for lack of a better phrase. And so, you know, they were like, you're a beautiful woman, like you're fertile. You should go marry somebody who you know is able-bodied and can provide for you. And, you know, a lot of more patriarchal thought process, kind of. So in her experience of being ostracized, she obviously went through with the marriage. They have two beautiful children um, currently. But she realized, um, or her eyes were opened to a form of discrimination that she currently, or hadn't previously experienced in Rwanda. And she realized that not only the disabled community was highly ostracized, but specifically women within the disabled community were incredibly ostracized, um, and they were frequently having to turn to things like sex work in order to provide for themselves. And then because they hadn't received any formal education because the school system had, you know, ostracized them and failed to educate them or they hadn't even gone to school, they hadn't learned about reproductive health education. So they didn't know how condoms worked and they were working in sex work. Or they actually had, um, in one scenario she's told me about, a woman thought that she couldn't get pregnant when she wasn't bleeding, um, which is obviously the opposite. So she had a woman, you know, a lot of women are having unwanted pregnancies um, who are disabled and it's exacerbating the situation they're already in of not being able to provide for themselves because now they have two mouths to feed or three mouths to feed. And, you know, it's a very vicious cycle of poverty, basically. Um, so she realized this was occurring and her first step was to start educating disabled women about reproductive health. So her and a couple of volunteers that she found in her community just started going around and they made some pamphlets and they started, you know, just educating these women about their bodies, um, which is something, you know, everyone has the right to have knowledge about, in my opinion. Um, and She's educated, I think it was 16 women thus far on it, and she has a growing team, and COVID has very much put a wrench in this. Um, in everything. In everything. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think currently, last time we spoke, um, she had said that hopefully this week, 
their providences would no longer be under lockdown because right now they basically can't enter or exit, exit any providence in Rwanda. Um, so they're hoping this week that that will open back up. But, you know, COVID is very much thrown or mentioned things because they're a very communal nation and um, they haven't been able to, you know, meet with anybody. And, you know, their internet connection isn't like in the U.S. where you can just hop on a Zoom meeting. Um, it's questionable when people are living in poverty there if they have internet access. So that's kind of halted everything. But she basically was amping up um, before COVID to really expand that reproductive health education program. And um, she's been doing things like, we're trying to write grants right now. We're starting a jobs training program, um, which she's got, I think, four or five different disabled individuals um, learning how to crochet and sew and use tailor, tailor things. Um, so that she can have them make traditional African handcrafts, um, that we can then sell at their local markets and online on our website. Um, and then I'm working on getting connections in the U S that'll sell them in physical retail locations as well. And the idea of the jobs program is that, okay, now they've been educated on reproductive health. So they understand, you know, how not to exacerbate their issue of, you know, having multiple mouths to feed and they can have safe sex. Um, and, you know, we were also educating them on things like what consent is and what their legal rights surrounding it are, because you have a lot of incidences of sexual assault in these scenarios, just in general, globally, um, specifically if people don't even understand that concept or that boundary. Um, but now that we've educated them on this, let's work on the next step, which is getting them out of poverty and, you know, teaching them how to do, you know, traditional African handcrafts. Our next stage of the program has a recycling program built into it. So they're hoping that we can train people to pick up recycling or like plastic products that are wasted and recycle them and turn them into, you know, home items like combs and outlet covers and things like that, that we can sell as well for a profit. And then it becomes a self-sustaining program, hopefully in which, um, you know, some of the proceeds go to buying more cloth and upkeep of the sewing machines and new training costs. And the other portion of the proceeds go directly to the people who are creating the products. Um, so right now we've raised $1,140, um, which have already been sent over to her. And she's in the process of actively, um, researching what products to make and training individuals, um, and renting sewing machines and all of that. So that's wonderful. Um, so that's, in short, where they're at, and we're also um, partnering with the University of Dayton at the moment, um, which is a new development since I last spoke to you. Yeah, I was going to um, say, I don't yeah. remember that. <laughs> yeah, so we're going places. Um, nice. So yeah, we're partnering with the University of Dayton. It's in its very early stages, um, but a student group there for their human rights major is working with us to start community school programs, basically. Basically, in an American context, is an after-school program. Um, where kids can learn things like ASL or Braille so that um, basically their future leaders have some understanding of, um, you know, what the disabled community goes through. We're removing the stigma at an early age. So hopefully legislation future, like down the road in 10, 15 years, will be more positive towards the disabled community. It's a really great idea. It's in its very early stages currently. Um, but we're working with them and, you know, they're also helping us boost our social media presence and with grant writing, because right now that's just me. I don't know what I'm <laughs> doing fully. Um, 
But yeah, so it's a wonderful organization. Let me take a sip of wine. I'll get into how I got involved. Girl, you take all the sips of wine. You know that's what we're about. <laughs> um, Happy hour chats. These are fun. Yeah, absolutely. So I got involved um, kind of back to the zoo. A family friend who also worked there knew that I did the study abroad in Rwanda. And she is also a friend of the founder, Godalive. Um, Godalive's husband, whose name is Frederick, is a speaker frequently at a fundraise, annual fundraiser for the Rwandan gorillas at the Columbus Zoo and Aquarium um, called the Rwandan Fet. So, you know, in non-COVID years, he frequently flies in and gives a keynote speech um, about, you know, his community. And the Columbus Zoo has helped him personally in um, starting a community center that he runs that helps get kids off the street um, and, you know, provides them with a safe place after school, something very traditional in our head. Um, But that was really important for them as a community. The Rwandan set at the Columbus Zoo's main focus is kind of similar to what we were talking about earlier with conservation of you have to help the people so that they help the wildlife. You can't just directly go in and help wildlife um, because you do still, like if you don't provide the local community with a job, or train them how and how to do a job, you can go in and dump thousands of dollars into gorilla conservation. But the moment you leave, they go back to poaching because that's the most equitable thing for them to do. But if you go in and you spend even a smaller amount of money, just training them and showing them how to make money off of ecotourism, they will turn around when you leave and they'll execute that. And it becomes a holistically profitable experience and you're saving wildlife simultaneously. So it's, you know, saving wildlife by helping people. So he was heavily involved in that organization and a family friend knew him and his wife, Godalive, um, from working on that event. Godalive had reached out to the family friend and asked, you know, hey, I need basically... Uh, not a co-founder, but someone, a U.S. connection or just someone to help me with the stuff I don't understand from a more human rights perspective and less of like a nonprofit running perspective. Um, And kind of out of left field, um, the family friend was like, oh, like I know somebody who studied abroad in Rwanda who wants to do research there who might be a good fit. I don't know. And so she reached out to me and I connected with Godalive and it's been, I think, almost four months now um, that I've been working voluntarily um, for (laughs) um, Miss Abel Humera. So, you know, she and I connected. She's absolutely, like I said, wonderful. I've already mentioned her story, um, but she's one of the most caring people I ever spoken to and just really wants to help others um, as much as possible. She really, really feels um, compelled by these women's stories. And it's not just women, I should say. Um, it is called Misable, but, you know, they don't exclude anyone um, from the disabled community. So there are men that are working on our jobs training program, and it is a wide variety of disab- or disabilities. Um, yes, my research in the future is probably more interested in people who became disabled due to um, events like mass violence and genocide, but the organization as a whole does focus on individuals with Down syndrome and cerebral palsy and who are blind and deaf and, you know, and then also amputees, but it's a very all-encompassing um, 
organization and they have so many wonderful ideas. It's just, they're at the point where they're like, okay, we do have financial boundaries as to what we were able to execute at the moment. Um, but yeah, absolutely wonderful organization. So. That's great. And um, for those handicrafts, so are those, is that something that is being worked upon now? Or is there anywhere that um, anyone could go online and buy those already? Or is that in the works? It's currently in the works. So we are hoping sometime this year. Um, it's really kind of up in the air because we are still waiting on, like I said, we've raised a thousand one hundred dollars um or so that have been sent to her and that's enough to get you know i think our goal is 200 handbags um is the main craft they're working on in the next couple months but we do have to you know continue to get funds to purchase the cloth to purchase the sewing machines that kind of stuff so we're i think our goal was eleven thousand and some some change eleven thousand and some change if i'm not wrong um so we're a tenth of our a little under a tenth of our goal. So, oh, that's and yeah. if and if so, if anybody listening, like they just they have some. I mean, it's tax season right now, so people are probably gonna get some <laughs> refunds. They might have like some extra money yeah. just to help throw out in the world to help reach this eleven thousand dollar goal. Where can anybody go just to help get there? Yeah, um, so it's on our website. Um, there's a donations tab. It's a GoFundMe page, um, but it's just Miss Able M I S S. A-B-L-E, and then Humera, no dash or anything, H-U-M-U-R-A.com. And like one of the first things that you'll see when you log on to the page is a donate button. So yeah. Um, perfect. Yes. Yeah. And anything is appreciated, um, any small amount. Uh, we've had a couple of very large donations, which is mostly how we've gotten to the 1,100. Um, but any dollar amount is very welcomed. So yeah. No, yeah. Especially when, I mean, collectively, if we all could just give a little bit, like, we'll, we'll, yeah. that could be reached pretty quickly, hopefully. Fingers crossed. Yeah. No, I'll make sure that that's blasted everywhere. So it's like, <laughs> hey, if you have $5 or $500, <laughs> that is just laying around, then this would be a really good place to put it. Awesome. No, that's great. And I'm, and this, her story is just so inspiring and to yeah. see a need, I mean, something that she was personally dealing with and to turn it into something that beautiful, she would have every right to feel the exact opposite, you know, and, and to be like, okay, this is a need. I love my husband tremendously. Um, mm -hmm. obviously there's more people that are experiencing what he's experiencing. So, and yeah. the fact that you're on it too, is like super cool. Like, <laughs> cool. like that's just such a cool life experience. Um, that's awesome. Yeah. Cause you just like recently started the Instagram and stuff, right? And you're yeah, like, <laughs> like 12 posts. It's ridiculous. I am not, a, I'm a very weird 23 year old. Um, I did not have Facebook and I did not have Instagram prior to January of this year. I'm pretty sure it is like the date or the timeline for that. Um, yeah. Cause I just, I don't know. I, you, you, major in psychology and you learn how horrible <laughs> social media is <laughs> for you. And I grew up, it was a very strict Catholic household. So like my parents were very against it. And then I just went into college and then my major basically told me that it's horrible for your mental health. And I was like, okay, we'll stay off of social media. Um, and then I started a nonprofit and she's like, can you get our, our social media up and running? And I was like, I can try. I honestly, I don't know what I'm doing. Um, <laughs> I know looking at me, you'd be like, yeah, she knows exactly how Facebook works or how Instagram works. And I'm like, I, I'm not entirely sure. 
Um, so we're trying our best to get a social media presence. It's not the strongest at the moment, um, but we're getting there. We've got some followers. So. <laughs> I know I'm yeah. one of them. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, we're getting there. We're chugging along. Um, but yeah, it's really just a, it's a wonderful learning experience. Um, and it's another weird connection because I worked in high school. Um, again, I went to, I was in Catholic school from kindergarten. I think it was pre-K even like preschool through my senior year of high school. Um, and so part of the high school graduation requirement was, I think like some small number of volunteer hours, like 24 or something like that. And so we had to do like a C or a sophomore service project. And I worked with, um, the special Olympics locally. And I actually ended up staying on there for three years, except like, I think it was only required to do like one season of student coaching. And I think I did like five or something like that for different sports. Um, so it's another weird thing where I'm like, I'd love to work with, you know, disabled individuals or help the disabled community in some way. And I could never find a connection point. And then this popped It materialized. Up. Yeah, exactly. It and manifested. Like, oh, similar to how I was like, I don't know what I want to study or do for a career, <laughs> but, um, and then everything just kind of combined. So it's another weird little coincidence in that regard. And, you know, I'm learning things that I would never learn otherwise that are wonderful to know in academia, like how to write a grant. Yeah, that's um, awesome. And I'm getting practice at it before I go into grad school and need money for it personally. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, that's so, yeah. great. It's a wonderful experience. That's great. So I there's there's something that I I love to ask and just um cuz it's just very interesting to hear everybody's life stories. What do you think in your story so far has been one of your biggest struggles that you've had to overcome? Um I would say Overall, personally, I know I have struggled with mental health for a long time. Um, it's one of those things where I had a lot of personal stuff come up, um, like my junior and senior year of high school. And they really, it's why I got into psychology, actually. Um, a lot of it is um, not just wanting to be a lawyer, but um, personal journey through depression, not understanding what it was or why I was feeling that way. And then anxiety is usually coupled with depression. And in my case, it was no different. And learning how to kind of work through it. And a lot of that came from studying it in college. In all honesty, I did, you know, I recommend therapy. If you're feeling down, it never hurts to talk to somebody. There is nothing wrong with admitting that, you know, you're not feeling 100% mentally. Um, so if anyone out there is struggling, you know, there's hundreds of, you know, counselors available. There's also wonderful online, um, zoom available, um, therapists and things like that, um, with everything that's going on. But, um, definitely my mental health has been probably the biggest thing, um, I've worked through over the last like six or seven years, probably. And, you know, it's, there's still reliance to everything. Yeah. I had really a bad time with it for two or three years, um, like senior year through like maybe my sophomore year of college. But, um, now when I am faced with something that's, um, you know, I, I study genocide or I want to study genocide, um, something that, you know, would make people upset or, you know, triggers me for lack of a better phrase again, 
um, I know to take a step back and to change my perspective, like cognitive behavioral therapy is something that I studied really heavily when I was going into psychology and the core tenets of it are that we need to change how we look at events instead of, uh, and our behaviors surrounding those events instead of actually changing, you know, the actual event. So learning how to look at things in a different light and take for, you know, in one way or another, a positive spin on it has been something that I've learned through this process that I wouldn't take back the world in all honesty. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, it really helps me on a day-to-day basis even of like, oh, I'm really angry about X. Well, you know, there's a positive way to look at that too of, you know, well, now you can go do Y and Z or something like that. Like you didn't get into grad school. Well, now you have money to go buy a house or something like that. Um, so yeah, definitely. I think that would probably be my biggest struggle personally, at least. Was there um, a trigger or anything that, that um, at that time? I was going through a lot of stuff at home, more or less. Um, mm. So I was having, I've always been in conflict with my parents to some extent. I'm a very boisterous person. Um, and we've worked through all of it since then, but basically I think a lot of stress of, you know, having to figure out what I wanted to do in college, going to college, being excited for that independence, but just all the change combined into one. Um, and yeah, just having just general home conflicts that I don't think are that uncommon in all honesty for most teenagers to have. And I, again, Catholic, like very Roman Catholic conservative household. And I am by, um, very liberal. Um, so, you know, politically we didn't always get along. Um, religiously we did not get along a lot of the time. I'm going say at all, right? From everything I can say. Yeah. I'm atheist. If, sometimes agnostic, but probably atheist. Um, so, you know, I think religion and politics and all of that stuff kind of, and then just being an angry teenager. Um, yeah, that doesn't just, help at all. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, being a very angry and very independent teenager did not help. Um, so yeah, I think just a lot of things people can relate to of being, you know, 17, 18, angry. Um, and you know, I, We've worked through it, like I said, and it came out better. I have a much healthier relationship with both my parents because of it. So again, there is a silver lining and, you know, now there's boundaries and it's healthy. So yeah. (laughs) Boundaries are good. Boundaries are good. (laughs) Well, boundaries are always safe, even in relationships, parents. Yeah. Everything. But no, thanks for sharing that. Thanks for sharing that. Because I just, I just really love to ask this question because I don't think it's talked about enough and what I'm starting to find the more of these interviews I have of how many times mental health is brought up Mm -hmm. and it just goes to show and just that how many of us experience these type of things and how we always feel so alone as we're going through it. And it's just not talked about enough. I mean, I know in my field, it's not talked about, you know, like our conservation field. Well, I mean, you're in sociology, psychology, I'm sure it's talked about freaking shit ton, but yeah, a decent amount. Um, You'd be surprised, but oh really? Yeah, 
Huh. I mean, so more of like from like a study sense, not necessarily like a personal sense. Yeah, everyone's educated about it. And there's definitely a movement within the field, within social science mm. specifically, I would say there's definitely a field. And I'm personally not in the academic portion of it right now. And there was definitely a push a year or two ago when I was, you know, in classes and things like that to be like, hey, like your mental health matters. But I've seen that, I think, socially in general in the last couple of years, just be a big push um, because everybody does feel that way. Like mm-hmm. it's a very isolating feeling. And it's incredibly important to know, like, no, I, like 30% of the population experiences depression at any given point in their life. Um, often that's more a than lot. once. Yeah. But it's, and that's one of the reasons I wanted to go into it. I'm like, there's a lot of people that need counseling who can't achieve it because we don't have enough counselors. So, you know, it's a big need socially and societally. So, you know, people do need to know, like, they're not alone. And yes, every person's experience with it is going to be a little different. But, you know, there is a very good chance that the person across from you in a room also is going through depression or anxiety, or, you know, there's lots of other mental health issues, but those are tend to be some of the big ones um, that a lot of people experience on a pretty regular basis. So, yeah, I appreciate you asking. Like, it's, yeah. I'm, I try to be really open about it. I, We'll tell most people like, yeah, no, I have, you know, depression. Like it's something that I struggle with on a fairly regular basis, but you know, it gets easier and there's some days that are worse than others. Um, but yeah, no, you, it's definitely something you can work through. And I think that's important to understand. It might feel like you can't work through it, but take it a day at a time and you'll get there. So. Yeah, that's beautiful. Thank you. Thanks yeah. so much for sharing that. Yeah, I mean, I, am, I know I knew what you were going to say. So <laughs> no, that was good. That was good. Like, it's like, like I said, it's been, it's, it's to the point where it's becoming a trend. Like when I asked that question com- completely unprompted, you know, like what has been your biggest struggle? And like I said, on more than one occasion, the answer has yeah. been mental health in some point in their life or currently battling um, like Haley, she was on. Mm-hmm. Um, my show and she, you know, was very open about talking about this. She even has like medication that she's taking uh, currently yeah. for it. And she has this very vibrant, bubbly personality. And it just, it just proves that it just, it just you can't judge people because you don't know what they're going through inside. Like yeah. you don't know what we all have our own personal struggles in some way, shape or form. And what someone is presenting on the outside might not necessarily be what's going on, on the inside. So just yeah. love everybody and have empathy yeah. for everybody because you just never know what they're currently experiencing at that time and how well they're hiding it or how yeah. well they're not hiding it. Um, yeah, no. Yeah. It's very, very true. Um, yeah. And it's funny. Cause like you think the girl that studies genocide is like probably struggles with some depression or something, but it's not related to that even remotely weirdly enough too. So like, you never know what, is going on with someone in their personal life. Um, yeah. and it can be a professional issue too. Like there's plenty of people who go into this and they're like, no, it is, you know, like, I think that's probably what one of my mentors gets asked most often is like, how do you deal with, you know, talking about genocide on a regular basis? And she's like, well, I exercise on a regular basis. I eat healthy. And some days there's bad days. Like, you know, there is like, sometimes it's really hard. Um, but yeah, it one day at a time is all I can really yeah. reiterate. 
Absolutely. And, yeah. I, and I'm sure a lot of people listening to this that are in the conservation field feel the same way. It's like, it, it feels like an uphill battle every single yeah. day, all day long. Cause I mean, the topic itself is depressing. You're like, okay, so this wildlife that I've dedicated my entire life to, um, the most recent headline came out that their numbers are dwindling. Um, their poaching has increased. It's always negative. It's always something really bad. Um, and unfortunately I happen to love big cats as my thing. And yep. <laughs> okay. Talk about one heck of a yeah. group to love because everywhere they're in trouble pretty much, um, yeah. for in general, big cats are in trouble everywhere. So yeah, just do just like that personal struggle of everything is always negative. Everything is always bad. And then just finding a way to cope with it and persevering every single day. And, um, being the scientist side, like, even though the topic of genocide is quite horrific, like mm -hmm. I can see how it'd be super fascinating from like a human psychology standpoint. I mean, I love history, like hardcore history. The podcast is like one of my yeah. favorite of all freaking time, <laughs> Dan Carlin and like the details that he goes into of what has the insane things that have happened in the past are, I mean, we are a tame species in comparison <laughs> to our ancestors. So even though, yes, genocide nowadays is bad, listen to Dan Carlin and some of the shit that we've done to each other in the past. It is freaking insane, um, oh, yeah. but very interesting. Yeah. But super interesting. And I don't know why it's entertaining, but it's really <laughs> entertaining. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, oh yeah. yeah. No, that's great. Yeah. No, that's great. That's so good. So, so I guess I was a high point. So, what would you say has been like in all of your studies or your journey or or the nonprofit or what do you think has been like some of your highest points or what you're most yeah. proud of? Yeah. So actually, it kind of ties into my last answer or a little bit to what we were just talking about. Um, you know, for every sad number you hear or, you know, depressing thing you read. There's a person who survived, who has a story that they want to tell and they'll tell you, and there's a personal connection to be made. So, you know, I would have never, without studying genocide, um, been connected with Godalive and known that, you know, she was doing these wonderful things in Rwanda to help the disabled community. I, you know, when I was in Rwanda, a big part of our study abroad was interviewing one or two people at a time as a big group and asking them questions. And it was everything from people who were genocide perpetrators. So they committed genocide and they had gotten out of jail and women's groups for survivors and individuals who saved people during genocide. Cause you know, it wasn't everyone killing a lot of people killed, but not everyone. There were people who, you know, were going in and hiding people in their fields and, you know, under banana leaves and things like that. Or in the case of the Holocaust, you hear about people who are hiding individuals in their attic and beneath floorboards and things like that. So for every horrible thing you read, it's nice to know that humanity does go both ways. You know, yes, some people might choose to commit genocide, but yes, other people also choose to save and to help and to prevent it. And along those lines, a big reason I was drawn to criminology and like when I did want to be a lawyer, um, I was drawn to how people can change. And that's another reason why I love psychology. 
I think the human mind is so malleable and, you know, you see it with people being able to do horrible things, but you also see it with, you know, I, I don't think because you commit a crime that you are this irredeemable person and that you should have a life sentence in prison or anything like that. You are able to change just because you did one bad action doesn't mean that you are a bad person. I don't honestly believe in the concept of good versus evil or good and bad, which is another reason I don't fit into Christianity very well. (laughs) Um, But um, I was really drawn to just how people can change and the extremes that you can see in one life. Um, So that is what kind of I absolutely love about what I want to study later on in life or when I hopefully get into grad school um, is just, you know, meeting people who realize they messed up and they want to change because honestly, as nice as it was and as weird as it sounds, as nice as it was to talk to people who saved individuals during genocide, it was more inspiring to talk to people who committed genocide and went to prison and served their sentence and were now actively trying to better their communities that they were living in and who had gained forgiveness from the families whose brother, sister, mother they had killed. And seeing how far they have come is absolutely incredible and really inspiring. As weird as that sounds. Like yeah. <laughs> oh, I can totally see that. I yeah. can totally see that. So that's, I mean, just like you said, not necessarily like the good versus evil thing, um, but to see how somebody can change so dramatically. And also just the fact that someone can forgive someone yeah. who did that. Because, I mean, yeah, who knows what mental state or, you know, groupthink that that person was under at the time. It's almost like a magic spell. I mean, that can, can convince people to do such atrocious acts, which they would never do otherwise, but just how heavily they're influenced. And, oh man, I mean, I've never been put in that situation and hope and pray to God I don't, but like if someone killed one of my family members, like would I, would I be noble enough to forgive? You know, I mean, that's, that's, that's a deep question. And so to hear that, and I'm sure that those people were insanely grateful to be welcomed back into their community because they, I mean, their community would have every reason not to, but just to welcome them back in is, wow, that's so inspiring. Like, I mean, us humans might be freaking crazy, but there's some good parts. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So I think, yeah, to answer your question in short, seeing all aspects of humanity is why I love what I do. Um, cause it is incredible. And it's the same thing with the Miss Abel Humira is, um, you know, she was ostracized and I'm sure she's reconnected with people who have ostracized her. Um, and she's also made new connections with people she wouldn't have met otherwise. And, you know, she, she's seen both sides of people, you know, the good and the bad. Um, and, you know, you just do what you can to stay on the good side. <laughs> Great. This has been 
Awesome. Is there any last minute, like last parting thoughts that you would like to throw out there or anything? I don't think so. Thank you so much for having me. It's been wonderful to chat with you as always. Yeah. <laughs> yeah and if anybody wants to uh, follow uh, Miss Abel Humera, what, what are the best ways to, um, I know you mentioned the website, but just like mm-hmm. one more time, just a quick rundown yeah. of what so, all you're on. Yeah, we're on Instagram and Facebook that may be expanding with our partnership with the University of Dayton. Um, not 100% sure. We might have a Twitter soon. We'll see. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, it's just MissAble.Humera um, on Instagram. And then uh, on Facebook, it's MissAbleHumera.Nonprofit. Um because somehow there was already a Missable Humera on Facebook. Um, yeah. Um, but yeah, those are our handles. And you can also find links on the website for both of those. Um, and if we expand to other platforms, those will also be on the website. So yeah. Perfect. And if anybody reaches out and wants to connect, I'll, I'll make sure they get to you and where they need That's, to go. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Awesome. Thanks, Anna. Hey, thanks again for listening to this episode of Rewildology. If you like what you heard, hit that subscribe button to never miss a future episode. Do you have a cool environmental organization, travel story, or research that you'd like to share? Let me know at rewildology.com. Until next time, friends, together we will rewild the planet.